how many of you are enjoying um, the book of Hebrews? Raise your hand. How many of you, now keep your hands up if you find it challenging. Keep your hands up if you find it a good reminder. Okay, good. Well, the book of Hebrews is, I, I think it's one of, I mean, the Bible in itself, the narrative is unbelievable because it's our story with God, which is really the only story that matters in the universe because God created the universe and he loves us unconditionally to a point that you, you and I can't possibly fathom. And so the entire book is a wonderful, beautiful narrative. But Hebrews is something that is just, it's so deep. It takes us, no matter how long we've been walking with Jesus, it takes us to a place we have to go back to the moment we did and see the areas in which God wants to challenge us even more so to step more fully into his presence and to learn more about him because there's always more to learn. So if anyone here thinks they know everything there is to know, um, it's going to be a long week <laughs> because life tests what you know, does it not? And so last week we went through Hebrews 5 through the beginning of 6 talking about practice and that solid food is for the mature and the author of this, of this letter, and it's really more an exhortation than it is a traditional letter, um, is, is writing to these people who have, have really been challenged and persecuted, and, and this is kind of review, challenged and persecuted, and now they're hitting their default ba- button and going back to what they used to know, and that's milky stuff. And so the author here says, I want to give you solid food, but I can't because you're not ready for solid food. I, I still need to feed you milk. And here's what solid food is for. It's for the mature. And how do you become mature? By practicing what you know of Jesus, practicing his presence in such a way you can distinguish where he is and where he's not. So last week we asked the question, about discernment, because that's the word that we see here. Discernment, being able to distinguish where God is and where he's not. Everyone that steps into Christ Jesus has access to discernment. So it's something that we need to practice. And so I'll ask the same question I asked last week. How many of you have stepped into a room, you may not know the people, and you go, oh, something's off here. Okay? What do you think that might be? A discernment, Right? And we can't stop there. So once we recognize something's off, we can't just say, something's off. I can't go, you know what, Tim, mm, man, something's off about you. I don't like this guy very much because of this or that or this or that because I'm getting this vibe. That's not a good use of my discernment, right? If I distinguish something's off with Tim, then I have to say this, Lord, what do you want to say? That's my next step into maturity because I'm surrendering what the Lord has allowed me to see back to him so that I can, I can see, again, the next step of what God wants me to see about Tim, because God doesn't need Tim to feel shame. He needs him to feel the opposite. And so maturity is about seeing things through the eyes of Christ. But to do that, we have to abide in him. We have to be in his presence, and that's something we have to practice every day. It's very challenging to remain in his presence every day when you're being pulled every which way, by whatever priorities you have or things you think are priorities that maybe shouldn't be priorities, do they not pull us every direction you can think of? Right? And then we go, then we make Jesus a priority on a priority list, but I don't think Jesus wants to be dumbed down to a priority on a priority list. He is our life. He sets the priorities in our life. 
because he's the one we're walking with and he's directing us. So that's something we have to practice all the time. We have to practice hearing God's voice. We have to practice loving each other. We have to practice patience. Oh, who loves that? Because we're going to talk about more of that today, right? So you're going to hear this forever and ever, amen, here at Bridgewood, because practice is key. And it's not so much about task as it is relational development. Okay, because when we hear practice, I've got to do something over and over and over, a task, in order to reach this. Well, it is a sense of repetition, but it's a relational one where I'm going to continue practice every morning saying, Lord, and authentically, as genuinely as possible, Lord, what do you want to say to me this morning? I thank you for who you are. What do you want to say to me today? I don't feel like engaging you right now, but I'm going to engage you right now. You see, there's this relational thing that's happening. And so today, we're going to go um, into chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. And what we're going to see here um, is the writer trying to get our eyes back onto the promises of God. And Sharon did a great uh, passage, or a great uh, message on a great passage uh, several weeks ago in which we talked about the trustworthiness of Jesus, of who he is. Because the first two chapters lay out um, Jesus' resume, that he's greater than angels, he's greater than Moses. Remember, these are people, or these are beings and people in the Hebrew culture that are put on a pedestal And the writer is saying, Jesus trumps all these guys. He can take all these guys out in a heartbeat. His resume is completely better. All right, so he makes the case for Christ, and there's no one greater than him. He is trustworthy, and we are going to see more so today of how trustworthy he is, that he keeps his promises. Because we are all people that are relying on, And trusting the promises of God. That if I believe in Jesus Christ, I will not perish, but I will have everlasting life with him and in him. Not just so I can avoid being in a fiery place of torment, which is really just separation from God. But so that I can fully be with the one who loves me unconditionally. That's a promise we rely on, is it not? When Jesus says, never will I leave you, never will I what? That's a promise we rely on. So these are a, this is a group of people that are feeling the promises of God tested in their lives. And they have to be reminded so that it can have new life for them. So last week, I want to start here. As, as we go into this passage, I want to start with verse 11 uh, from chapter 5. Um, so if you've got your little insert or if you have your Bible, I'll be reading from the ESV because it, it, it leaves in some good language that we need to hear. Um, and starting from verse 11 in chapter 5, after we hear this great exhortation about practice, about leaving the elementary teachings of the faith and moving into maturity, here's what the author says in verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance, and I want you to pay attention to this phrase, of hope. So we're going to visit that word today. When, when a passage repeats a word, you pay attention to it. Okay? When a passage repeats a word, we want to pay attention to it. So, uh, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and what? Patience. Yeah. Inherit the promises. All right. 
So starting in verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, which we see in Genesis, um, in this passage, Genesis 22, since for we made, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Okay, let's stop there. All right, what do you hear in this passage? Yeah, he is the greatest. Absolutely. He's the greatest, which means there's no one else for him to swear on except for whom? Himself. That should be scary to us. Now, we could easily read over that, right? For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. This is a God that doesn't break his promises. So if he's swearing upon the character of who he is, that something is going to happen, guess what? It is going to happen. And that's scary. And not in the sense of like, oh, I'm so frightened. It's awe-inspiring fear. That this is a God who knows who he is and does what he says he's going to do. Now, that, that should bring hope, too. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, there, there's the key. I, I have a, a friend who got a word over his life about a situation that he's in. And, uh, and the word was something like, just the Lord wants you to wait. Just wait, because what you've wanted for so long, I'm going to give to you, but you need to wait. So it's only been six months since that word, and I sit down with him. How much more waiting do I have to do? Is what he says. I've been waiting for six months. Well, (laughs) and it's kind of funny, right? Because it's God's timing. And when he says wait, it means wait. Trust. And it's hard because we're... Most of us, whether we're not deep processors, we do process. We, we live in the future. We want to know what's going to happen because our, every moment of our present day is affected by something about tomorrow or the days after. Is it not? How many of you have plans on your calendar? How many of you have stressful things ahead that haven't happened yet, but they're causing stress today? If that's not the definition of insanity, I don't know what is because that would drive you mad. It does drive you mad, right? Things that have not happened are now affecting your present. And so we process these things and it gets really, really challenging, especially when you're talking about the promises of God. Because it makes it hard to wait because you're always thinking about what if, what if, what if. We what if ourselves to death. We, are, as a culture, are hypothetical nightmares, right? Well, what if this happens? Well, what if that happens? And I do it too. <laughs> We're all guilty in this. And then it affects our countenance. It affects how we engage Jesus right now in this moment. And we don't like it, but we keep doing it. Do we not? We keep doing it. So when we hear the word wait, we, that, whoa. Patient, ugh. We hate those words, but they're key because it's in God's timing. And how many of you have waited? It may have been hard, but you waited and God answers something, and then you look back and go, man, I'm glad it happened that way. Right? Look, man, I didn't want to be in Minnesota. 
It was not my dream when I was six years old. Going, man, I can't wait to get to Minnesota. <laughs> and I knew God had something for me. I had no idea it would be in Blaine, Minnesota. But I am beyond grateful and ecstatic and excited and never regret it ever. And I look back and I go, man, I'm glad God did it that way. It was hard. It was challenging. And people go, well, Brendan, would you go back to California if you could? Nope, not a chance. And I made that statement three times this week. Because God is so good. And his promises and his timing go beyond what we can understand. So Abraham, man, the dude could wait. Because he didn't even get to see everything happen. He didn't get to see the promise that God said about the offspring. How many people would come from him. But he still waited and he was faithful. Verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that, by, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What word did you just hear there at the end? Hope. We're going to hear it again. So going back to verse 16 here. So, for people swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Now, this is a culture that would understand that because oaths were used quite frequently for legal, basically, documentation, if you will. And so, an oath, does that sound similar to a promise? Right? You hear promise and you hear oath. And in this passage, we hear that there are two things that are for certain, and that's That is the promise, which is the character of God's purpose. That's what this passage says. The promise is the character of God's purpose. And then you have his oath. These are the two things that never change. But promise and oath seem very similar. But a promise is a declaration to say that I am, my yes is my yes. Right? And an oath has to do with someone in higher authority. So basically a promise to a higher authority. So So God makes a promise saying, this is what I'm going to do, and I will make sure it gets done. Here's the oath. I swear by my name that it will get done. So the promise is the verbal commitment, and the oath is basically the accountability saying, it will get done. You You can count on it. Now, this talks about God's character that something that never, ever, ever changes. Jesus will always do what he says he's going to do because that oath is taken by his own name and it is impossible for God to lie. It's absolutely impossible. If he were to lie, he would almost cease to exist because what we know of God would be no more because we know that he does not lie. It is not, and there's no reason to. If you're the all-powerful God, why would you need to lie? Because we lie because the circumstances in our life are unsatisfactory. So we lie in order to enhance our positioning and the circumstances in our life. There might be other reasons, but those are big reasons, right? If you get caught doing something you shouldn't be doing, how do you get out of it? 
what's a way to get out of it? You lie, right? Even if you don't mean to. Right? Gracie, did you take Emmett's pacifier? No. Right? Because you know a consequence is coming. Right? And it's tied to also our value. We don't like who we are, so we make up stuff about ourselves so that we can feel better about who we are. Right? I've been prone to this as far as exaggeration. Exaggeration is a form of it. It seems harmless, but, right, we take something that's happened and we make it seem far bigger because guess what it gives us? It gives us a greater sense of value and security in who we are. God doesn't need that because he knows who he is. He doesn't need to lie because he knows all things. He knows the circumstances, and the circumstances cannot trump his character. So that should be life-changing for us to remember, to understand, to maybe even hear for the first time. Two unchanging things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The hope set before us is Him. It's Jesus. It's the salvation that He brings, the promise of salvation. And then here we see in verse 19, we we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor, anchor of the soul, a hope that enters to the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on behalf, on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which again we'll talk about more next week. Melchizedek is, he was a high priest and a king, just like Jesus, high priest and a king, um, who is compared to Jesus in the sense that he has great character. Probably one of the few human beings that were most like the character of Jesus. And so when we hear words here, just to give you a quick historical context here, when we hear words like, he enters into the inner place behind the curtain, is the inner place in the temple that had this curtain up and only certain priests could go back there. It's, It's where the presence of God was believed to dwell, all of this stuff. And so now we hear that Jesus pulls back that curtain and invites us in with him to the inner place, to the most intimate place of God. To his heart, to experience everything he is, his fullness. So, okay, we see here that the promises of God are reliable. We hear that he is trustworthy. So where, where do we take it from here, now that we're hearing it? We take it from here, and it goes to here, and then we see it in our actions. When I was um, six years old, I remember this, because when we have promises made to us and they're broken, that affects trust. It affect, does it not? It affects trust. And then we're told in Scripture, love always what? Trust. Nah. But how, wait a minute. How do I trust when it's been broken? How do I trust when someone's not trustworthy? I don't get that. How do I do that? So I first learned, so I was six years old. I was living in Seattle, Washington, and um, I like to climb trees. That was my thing, man. I wanted to be like Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer and those guys. And we had this cherry tree, and I loved, I, I loved cherries. And it was because of this cherry tree we had. And it was actually my neighbor's yard that came over. And I remember this one specific day that my best friend was going to come to my house, and he lived kind of far away. And so 
you know, um, he guaranteed me, even at six years old, his dad said, we promise we're going to be there. We promise we're going to be there. So me, I am what? Hopeful because of the promise that was given to me that something was going to happen. Now, I start, I wake up, start my day. I'm so excited. You know, you're six years old. And so you're kind of just like, whoa. Actually, I was five years old. So I'm like, you know what? Ah, I'm going to climb the cherry tree, get a good workout in. So I sneak over to my neighbor's yard, and they had all these cinder blocks around the tree, these broken cinder blocks. Now, it was a summer day where the sun was actually out in Seattle. So if that, when you're a five-year-old and the sun comes out in a place you only see three times a year, maybe, you know, you're just in your shorts. Right? So I'm like, you know. And I'm in my shorts, I climb this thing, and my dad calls me, and I lose my step on top of the tree, and I fall straight back about 10 feet onto cinder blocks, okay? And I, my back is just bleeding all over the place. Unfortunately, I didn't hit my head or anything. My dad, he comes, get, gets me, brings me into the bathtub, and washes me off, and, you know, you get the painful stuff, and medicine and you're just in a bad mood but guess what my best friend was coming over so i didn't care i had hoped that the day would be renewed so my dad says let's go for a walk so this is a couple hours later let's go for a walk and there's this cemetery near our house and it was getting kind of kind of dark and so we're running through my brother and i are running through and they had all these cables blocking our way out of this one section and so I said, oh, Dad, I see a way out. And I just run, and I hear him go, wait. And I just, but I'm like, Pfft. and I just keep running. And all of a sudden, I'm looking up at the sky. And I've got clotheslined by one of those cables that were old, rusty, and had the slivers of um, metal. So I've got all these slivers in my neck. So my mom's pulling them out with tweezers and... And my back was all bandaged from earlier in the day. That ripped up again. Back in the bathtub, getting all this. We get a phone call, and I'm still excited because, all right, it's all right, man. My bud's coming over. We're good. And they call, and they say, we can't make it. All hope, all joy of possibility is now gone because the promise was not kept. And what that does, especially at an early age, is it now begins to develop a pattern, or it can. Now, fortunately, I had a father in my life when he said he was going to be at something, he was there. And so that helped mend some fences there. But can you see where some of us might get off track? And when we hear about the promises of God, when we cry out in a situation where we have someone close to us hurt or die or sexually abused, God, where are you? You said, you're never going to leave me. You're never going to forsake me. And I don't sense your presence anywhere. And you promised me. You gave an oath. You swore by your name that you would be here in the midst. And I don't see you. What do you do with that? Who's ever felt that way? Man, I have. My car is my screaming zone. People think I'm nuts on the road because I'm going, at nobody. But that's because we approach God with a narrow understanding. We approach the promises with a narrow understanding. Because 
it's, it's about our time. And we think that when something tragic happens, and this is just my opinion, this is just my experience, okay? When something tragic happens, we're not seeing the before and the after. We're just seeing the right now. We're seeing what we feel. And we need a place to express. And how do you express to the people next to you that are feeling the same thing that you're feeling, how do you express to them what you're feeling and think you're going to be heard with some kind of sense of hope? God is not threatened by you getting angry at him. Has anyone ever felt guilty for being angry at God? Other than me? Okay, right? Has anyone felt guilty for saying, I really don't like you right now? But we put that on ourselves because the promises of God says this, I'm always going to love you as you are, not as you should be, because none of us are as we should be. But that will change the more you step into my presence. But the love never changes. So we bring the shame upon ourselves because we don't understand the promises of God. Because the promises of God in our mind, even though we say they're eternal and they're true, are conditional. Well, God can't love me in this moment. God must be upset with me because I'm upset with him. But guess what? When you're yelling and screaming at him, who are you engaging? Him. Right? (laughs) He would rather you be with him and angry at him than away from him and just numb. And this is what brings us hope, that we have a God that doesn't forsake us. He doesn't abandon us, even with our bad, irrational behavior. He still loves us unconditionally and so deeply that we feel shame and guilt because we don't believe anyone can love us that way, nor should they, because of what we've done. It's all the cause and effect thing, but his promises are not based off the cause and effect rule of our lives. It's there, and he says, take it, and that's why the author here is saying we have this deep hope. We have this deep, deep hope, and to have hope, Mark Zamora, raise your hand. Okay, this is our junior high pastor, Mark Zamora. And Mark asks very innocent but great poignant questions. And he comes into my office. You don't mind me sharing this? You're on the spot now, but okay. He says to me, Brendan, how would you define hope? And God's timing is perfect because we're talking about it today. And it put me in a spot to practice it. And I, I had to think about it, Right? I pretended like I had stuff to do, but it was actually me buying time. (laughs) But hope, I would say, you cannot have hope unless there's something consistent and unwavering to have hope in that is immovable. You cannot move it. You cannot shake it. Because hope is the belief of something better and sure and true that changes the atmosphere of your current circumstances. So when I'm in a tough spot, I have hope in Christ Jesus because his promises are true and he's consistent. He's the same today, yesterday, as he is today and forever will be. He's uncreated, so I can't put him in a box. When he says he can't lie, he can't lie. He will not lie to me. He never says to me, when you accept Jesus, things are going to be hunky-dory and you're just going to float through life like a bunch of butterflies. He doesn't say that. He says, life will get harder, but I will be with you. 
And where I am, there will be great joy in the midst of suffering. There will be great excitement because of the hope I bring to you because I'm eternal and I'm unwavering so I can put my hope in him. I can't put my hope in my friend's oath because he can't affect how his parents have situations that change. That means he can't come see me. He can't promise me that. It's not him to promise because he has no control. Even those of us who think we have control have no control. The only control we have, and it's even Jesus chooses us, but to receive the invitation to say yes, Jesus. With free will, that's the control we have, is to say yes to him. Or to say no. But to say yes. Outside of that, God has all control so we can have hope in him because he doesn't change. When he says he's going to do something, he's going to do something. That's hope to me. That's hope. And let me tell you something. When you begin to believe and live in the promises of God, then your word to someone else means something different. Because you begin to follow through. How many have broken a promise? Whether on purpose or not, right? Circumstances change things. But what do we leave this time with? One, I hope we understand that we need to revisit the promises of God and do some work there in prayer. Say, Lord, what do I need to see that I haven't been seeing? We also need to see that God is a safe place that we can yell and scream and cry and laugh and and celebrate, and he's not threatened by any of it. And the other is, how do we live out our own word, our own promises to people? Because that's key. How many people in this world, have felt let down because Christians cannot live out their promises. They cannot live out or do not live out what the, who, whom they've claimed to love and model. That's why grace and mercy is something we must practice because there are going to be people that are going to let us down. And how do we see them with the way God sees us? Do we shame them? Does God shame us? No, he doesn't. So do we shame them? No, we don't. So it's important how we live that out. And I want to end with this story. And the story's a little risky for me because it's a little close to home. But I have a dear friend um, who's from, a, and I don't want to give too many details, but he's from a, he has a different nationality. And he's experienced some racism that's been very hard for him. And I've been trying to walk him through it. I've known him for years and years, and I'm walking him through it as best I can. And I get a text one day. And he's furious because uh, he saw a good friend of his of a different nationality that was beaten up by a cop. And he's so mad. And he said, he's done with me. He's done with everything. Actually, before that, he, he asked me to read a book that had to do with some of these issues. And I responded because I didn't want to go, yeah, I'm going to read it and not read it. So I'm like, I will check it out. Now, that was a buzzword for him. Because when he, he talks to pastors about these kind of issues all the time, is what he does. And they all say, what? I'll check it out. And none of them ever do. Now, this is one of the times I think I got it right in my life. Because one of the things I try to do when I say I'm going to pray for someone, I try to pray for them right there on the spot. Because I don't want to say I'm going to pray for you and then forget about it. Right? Because we want to be people that follow through with what we say we're going to do. Because if we're to model Jesus, we should model how he honors his word. 
Now, we're not going to do it all the time, but we should strive and practice to honor our word as best that we can and be careful not to make oaths we cannot keep. And so he got so mad at me for that, he said, we're done. Now, this is over, this is almost 15 years of friendship. He was ready, he was just done. Because it's one thing. And so I called him. I let him cool off. I called him. And I said, look, when I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. I've already read most of this. I bought the thing. He goes, you did? I said, yeah. He goes, well, you got to understand, no one keeps their word with me. Nobody. I say these things, and they say, oh, yeah, I'm going to do it just to dismiss me and not have to deal with the issues. And so for the first time, he had someone who was a, a, you know, a privileged white pastor follow through with what he said he was going to follow through with. And let me tell you, it's changed the dynamic of our relationship and changed the trust quotient exponentially. And has given me access to his heart in ways he would never have let me before simply because I was able to follow through with the promise I made him. If I'm going to check it out, I'm going to check it out. So it's something to think about. When we think about the promises of God, we better start believing he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And that means provide you a safe place to be vulnerable and to engage him with anything. Because he says what? Come to me with all kinds of prayers and requests. And I would say complaints, annoyances, grievances, because I am not threatened. My value is not threatened by you being mad at me, because at least we're in the same room talking about it. And I'm going to do a work in your life because you're here engaging me. And then, as we reflect on that, how do we live out our own promises that we make to people? That's why God says, don't make these oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So when you say you're going to do something, what? Do it. If you're going to follow Jesus and you say you're going to follow Jesus and walk with Jesus, guess what I would say to that? Do it. Do it, not to prove something, but to be faithful with what you say you're going to do. You don't have to prove to me or anyone else I'm walking with Jesus. That's between you and Jesus. If you're walking with Jesus, people are going to see it whether you talk about it or not. But between you and he, to honor what you say you're going to do, does that mean we're going to do it every time? No, but that's where the grace comes in and leads us not into shame but conviction. Remember, we talked about last week when we practice, there are going to be times we fail. And church, the people of God, should be the safest people on earth for you to fail in front of. We should be rejoicing in the midst of someone's failings because it doesn't make them a failure. It leads them to that next step to success or to deeper intimacy with Jesus is how I would define success. So if any, I want to, um, as we close, I want to pray something over all of you right now. If any of you, so if you just close your eyes or however you pray, I want you to get in a posture of receiving. So whether it's your hands open or whatnot, but Lord, prepare hearts to receive. If the word failure has been a curse on your life because someone has called you a failure or you feel like a failure because you don't add up, I reject that in the name of Jesus. I remove that in the name of Jesus. And I bless you with the knowledge that you are fearfully and wonderfully made with a value and significance and a love that cannot be diminished. And so I would say to you, with, with everything you can, is to receive the love of God right now in this moment because the promise is that his love will never cease or never fail you. 
We may fail, but it does not make us failures. Because God is, wants us to be refined and move into maturity, and it does not happen overnight, which means failings will happen. But we keep moving forward with Christ Jesus. So I just want to remove that, that shame that comes from that title of failure. I've lived with that so long in my life. I'm f- terrified of failure. But it's not who I am, and it's not who you are. So Lord, may we leave knowing who we are today. Because of who you say we are, and your promises are true. So we thank you. And I ask, Lord, as we take the offering this morning, as we continue to close in worship, that we would, um, that we would approach you with faith, that we would honor you, We'd honor you with our finances, our time, our relationships. And I pray that when we worship, as we step into worship, that we wouldn't be aware of insecurity, we wouldn't be aware of any fears that would keep us from fully uh, enveloping ourselves into your presence. So, Lord, may you uh, continue to make this a safe place for us to worship you. We thank you that your promises are true. And we thank you that um, it is impossible for you not to follow through with what you say you're going to do. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.